So we'll read verses 1 to 20, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version of God's holy inspired word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town clings to our feet. We wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. This passage helps explain something that happened in China back in the 1990s. You may have read about it or at least uh, heard of its inclusion in a book published in 2003 by David uh, Aikman, Jesus in Beijing. Very interesting title. But he's talking about how missions had changed and evolved in China in recent decades. Very significant book. I can loan you my copy. In it, he talks about uh, 1994 and the China Gospel Fellowship. I don't know much about the group, but they decided to raise funds for a special mission to send out 70 evangelists two by two into the outer reaches of China. 
inspired by this passage. By the way, this is only found in Luke. But they read this, and uh, they probably read it in the old King James, which mentions 70. Uh, Other Bibles mention 72. But they wanted to duplicate that. So they raised the funds sufficient to buy one-way tickets for all 70 and sent them out two by two into the outer provinces. Six months later, the story told, they all returned home safely, having planted churches, and some of those churches large enough to return finances and to see these missionaries come home. Churches in 22 of China's 30 provinces from that single effort alone. It's amazing. In the 1990s, some of you remember the 90s. This group was focused and had an urgency and tried to replicate this as they understood it. And God blessed it. They were seeking a spiritual harvest. And they committed some of their own to the task. raises the question, if we're going to hear this account from Luke today and Jesus explaining the spiritual mission field, how will we respond? Do we have a sense of urgency? Do we see the spiritual harvest that's ready all around us? How are we contributing? What's our role? Are we focused or distracted? It'll raise some challenging questions. So let's look. The first of our three headings this morning takes the first and largest section, verses 1 to 12. And we see Jesus giving us a strategy for the spiritual harvest fields strategy for this field and it has a few more subpoints than I normally do but let's look first at the parameters of the mission some of the things are are familiar here because at the beginning of chapter 9 Jesus sent out the 12 apostles on a mission that was well known and said some of the same things go out two by two uh, don't take much with you travel light similar prescriptions and parameters but here there's 70, 72 being sent out. Which is it, 70 or 72? We don't know exactly. The oldest manuscripts say 72. But there are a lot of old, good manuscripts that say 70. And all the good conservative scholars are divided. And they say it's very difficult to know which is the original. And some lean towards, well, what does the significance of the number mean? And they chase it down and... I've studied those, and I'm not going to take time to list all those meanings for the number, because I don't think that's the point here directly. But I do see a point being made. There are more than 12 disciples of Jesus. And the task of evangelism falls on more than just the professionals. That seems to be one point that is clear. The 12 well, you're professional apostles, but the rest, you know, this guy was a potter, that guy was an accountant, or, or this woman. What, what were these other disciples? They were Christians. And Jesus puts them to work in his spiritual harvesting. It's good to take note of that. 
What's the aim of this mission, uh, these parameters? Uh, it seems that Jesus wanted to cover more ground. His time was limited. He's moving towards Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to be in these areas, so he sends them ahead to those same areas, which only tells us that Jesus was traveling quite a bit to get to all of those 36 villages during this time span. And it was a region of the country where he hadn't labored as much. He had been up in Galilee, you know, the Sea of Galilee to the north of the Promised Land. That, that was kind of home turf. He had been there. Some of the disciples, three of them come from Bethsaida. He was working there primarily. And, and everybody speaks of the disciples as Galileans. That was well-ministered area. But on his way to Jerusalem, you know, Samaria's in the middle, the Transjordan areas. Jesus is covering these areas with this mission because the harvest is plentiful. That's why there's a mission. And it has these parameters. We'll talk more about traveling light in just a minute. But notice another stratagem here, number two, the priority of prayer. What prompts this call for prayer? Well, the problem is what? What's the problem? The harvest is ready to fall off the trees, but we don't have somebody to pick it. The harvest is ready to be reaped, but there are no laborers. And so Jesus says that's a concern. And he says, pray, ask the Father to send more laborers. Jesus calls for earnest prayer. What does he mean by earnest prayer? Well, hang on. I'll tell you what I think he means. I think he means as we pray, we might even say, Lord, if you need to, send me. I believe the need is so real. And I'm asking you to do something. I am putting myself available into your hands. I grew up the son of a liberal Protestant minister and came to faith only when another friend became born again, and I was trying to help him, and he helped me. And I had my intentions once I was converted. I didn't want to be a minister. I'd seen a model that I didn't appreciate, and I had said wanted to be this or that. And yet as I prayed about God's will for my life, I said, Lord, I'll, I'll be anything really but this. You know, I, I really don't want to be a minister and a preacher. But if we're earnest in asking for God's will be done, we can't, you know, put our own parameters on the prayer. Not my will, but thy will be done. If you pray for the cause of Christ in the world, you put yourself on the table. You raise your hand to volunteer and see what God will do with you. I think that's how Jesus looked at this crowd that had been following him. To pray earnestly and pray to the Lord of the harvest, the sovereignty of God. The solution isn't just to hire a think tank or a marketing team. God may want that. But God says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. God sows, God reaps. And he uses us in the process. But he is the sovereign one to send and to receive, send more laborers. It's so important. 
Let me pause for 30 seconds of this sermon to pray. Will you join me? Share the amen. Heavenly Father, we hear what Jesus said as his days were counting down to the cross about the spiritual harvest around him. It is true, Lord, you plant and you seek to harvest even today. May we have eyes to see it. May we have hearts that long for a harvest. May we contribute our labors. Father, send more laborers. Make more witnesses speak and act to garner a harvest, even here in Clifton Park, in the capital region, in upstate New York of all places. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Third strategy for these harvest fields, the perilous position of those who go. He's sending out the 72, and they're in a perilous position because he calls them lambs among wolves. Do you see it in verse 3? Go your way, behold. It's almost, it, it almost sounds like an afterthought as they're already breaking camp and heading over the, the hill, and they'll be out of sight too. Hey, by the way, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Why does Jesus mention that? It's so they remember that they are vulnerable and dependent on the shepherd. And they have learned all along that Jesus himself was a vulnerable one among sinful men and his father cared and kept him. Those Jesus sends will have Jesus' protection as they go, but that does not dismiss our vulnerabilities, our weakness. It's something to take note of. We do know from elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus will go after the the one single lamb. He loves his lambs dearly. He speaks to us. He knows us by name. We hear his voice and we follow him. He's not deploying Delta Force. You and your Bible, you're going to go kick some unbelievers' backside. The Lord will supply the power to his faithful ones. But be forewarned. Be trusting. Be dependent. Willingly dependent. Moving on, two more stratagems, two more points to be made about the mission from verses 1 to 12. Number four actually has a few subpoints of its own, so let's jump in. Number four, I say pinpoint the opportunities. Pinpoint. It's one word. You can spell check it. Pinpoint, like you put a pin on a map. You're specific. You specify. You focus on some opportunities. Here, I'm, I'm looking at three different components of what Jesus is saying And it leads me to to see this stratagem of pinpoint, to find or locate exactly. The first thing Jesus says that helps me see this strategy is he says, skip the empty conversations. The King James says, salute no one. And salute meaning salutation and greeting. Here in the ESV, in our modern English version, in the midst of uh, describing the task in verse 4, he says, greet no one on the road. Boy, that sounds kind of callous. 
What does Jesus mean? Well, if you're going to pursue the meaning of a text, you always start with the author and his original audience. Those words, what would they have meant to the original audience? Well, in the ancient world, hospitality, greetings, social interactions were a lot different than walking through Manhattan, New York. You would stop, you would greet, you would care for someone, not in a frivolous, simple way. Hey, you Bob. Hey, Bill. You would talk. You would inquire. You would probably sit down and have a meal. You might be invited to someone's home. Extensive social entertainments can come in the ancient world. It was a big deal to greet one another. He's saying skip the empty conversations on the way. Take a focused perspective. Don't waste time, as one scholar said, on empty compliments and conventional courtesies. You're on assignment. You're on mission. You're on your way to work. You don't have time for the simplicities or distractions of everyday life. You're focused. He seems to be saying, focus on conversations and relationships that have the greatest potential. If you're on the road, I, I don't think Jesus prohibits you from saying hi and moving on in our context. He, he's just saying, don't let every little conversation entangle you and distract you from the mission. There's some times that are more opportune when you get to the home, when you begin to share a life with someone in that village, when they see uh, that you're, you're earnest as a, a messenger for the Messiah. That witness is worth spending time upon so that they can evaluate the messenger and the message. And, and so that's why he says in verse 7 to stay put, remain in the same house. That's part of this pinpointing. Don't bounce around from house to house. The first house that you come and they welcome you in might be a poor house and they only serve lentils for food. There's no meat on the menu. But you know down the road there's another house that might have meat. You don't just change houses for hospitality's sake. You could give yourself the, the reputation of, of being in it for the money. Or being in it for the blessings. Jesus says, just stay put and focus on that first relationship. Don't get distracted. There's a call here to contentment, my friends. Oh, I wish I could witness over in that neighborhood. That's the growing neighborhood. Well, you're in this neighborhood. You're in this apartment. You're in this season of life. That's where God's deployed you. Focus on that. Pinpoint the opportunities in that for going deep and not being perceived as getting for yourself. And then did you notice this other instruction here in verse 7? He says, eating and drinking what they provide. That was a bit unusual. That wasn't mentioned earlier in chapter 9 in that deployment. And again in verse 8 he says, eat what is set before you. Well, you know... This area of the promised land was thick with Gentiles. Samaria was nearby, and even some of the villages of Samaria might have been included. A lot of Gentiles, a lot of non-kosher kitchens. 
So what does Jesus say to his Jewish-turned-Christian disciples? He says, eat what they provide. Don't worry about it. What? The kosher laws? Jesus says, prioritize the opportunities. We know theologically the Old Testament dispensation was passing away with the coming of Christ in the New Covenant. And Jesus would tell Peter in a vision that all foods are clean. So that old was passing away. Jesus now just says, eat and drink what they provide. And I think here I have to pause because I think this might be one of the great application moments for some sitting in this room or listening to this sermon. I think Jesus says, put in the back seat your little peculiarities that will keep you from this mission. Declutter your life. Make room to focus on the harvest. Do we have a sense of urgency about this? That's what I see as Jesus instructs the Jewish-turned-Christian disciples he's sending out. You may end up in a home and they may serve pork. This is challenging. But Jesus has a sense of urgency and readiness and flexibility in this mission. And of course, the culmination of this first heading is preach the gospel. Do good and preach the gospel. Verse 9 gives us both priorities. There are dual priorities, although preaching is primary. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What's the relationship of these two priorities? Well, the message was the priority. And the healings and the doing good were testimonies and signs to the veracity of the message. How do we know you're speaking the truth that Messiah's really come? Well, look. The blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. These are signs of the Messiah's presence. So the sign, miraculous gifts, and the good deeds point to the message. The kingdom of God is near. God's work at providing a Messiah. It's happening. It's near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus is finishing those instructions, and he mentions, if some do not receive you, those last couple verses, 10, 11, and 12, it triggers a thought. He ends in verse 12 saying, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Meaning, a town that refuses the message. The town that turns away the messengers of Jesus. Ah, get out of here. It will be more bearable for Sodom, destroyed by fire from heaven, than for that town. And that triggers this second heading. Jesus tells us about what's at stake and that there's great woe for the unreceptive. Great woes. We have to remember woe isn't a pronouncement of judgment per se, but rather it's an expression of deep regret and sad dismay. Woe, woe, woe. How sad. How horribly sad. 
It's an expression of, of grief by the speaker at what they've encountered. Let's read verses 13 and following again to hear from Jesus himself. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's a city, a little town. Woe to you, Bethsaida, another city on the shores of Galilee. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities north, into, uh, north towards Damascus, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, he mentions a third town. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Wow. The Lord Jesus says this mission is so important, bringing the good news near, because it will expose those who aren't receptive, and woe to them. Those three villages are on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And you know what's interesting? We don't know of any particular miracle done in Chorazin. It's not named. But it's nearby Bethsaida, and just outside Bethsaida is where Jesus did a couple of his greatest miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. And I think that applies as one of the great miracles that would have been near Chorazin. And certainly Jesus did many other things that aren't recorded in the scriptures. What is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us that to reject this message now is to incur greater judgment. His words, not ours. He's talking about something being more bearable for Sodom than for that town. Well, both towns have been judged and will be judged. But he says more bearable. He says, the message you're bringing is so precious. And the proofs that you offer with the healings and the helps are so significant, a non-response seems inexcusable. Not every person that heard Jesus preach was converted. There were a lot of people in the presence of Jesus that turned away. But when a ministry focuses on a town and they have this opportunity, they incur the judgment of God for not being receptive. And Jesus goes on further to expressly say that if they have rejected you, the one who speaks, they're rejecting him. It's in verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Some preaching on this verse and commenting on this verse have said to reject the gospel from a preacher coming to your ears is to reject Jesus. A lot of gospel preaching going on today across the United States of America. Those who hear week in and week out the true gospel and yet are unresponsive, that's dangerous. That provokes a woe from Jesus. 
let me be clear, even here and even now, let me just pause. You know what the gospel is. It's a historical truth that brings good news to those who hear it. God sent his one and only son, Jesus, the divine son of God, became incarnate, lived among us as a man, had flesh and blood, and offered his sinless life as a substitute for sinners at the cross. Sin must be punished. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what we learn through the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. It's set up so that we see that. How do I get my sins forgiven? Not by shedding my own blood, not by being righteous myself, because who can be righteous? There's no, not one. But Christ, the righteous one, takes our place on the cross. He lays down his life for his sheep. So that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our sins are forgiven and we're clothed, we're robed with the righteousness of Christ. And God looks on us as his son. Romans 8, we can cry out, Abba, Father, if we've come to believe in Jesus Christ. If we repent and believe in him, believe this historic good news. We can be saved. From the wrath of God. We can be adopted and have a hope of heaven. And on that day when Christ returns. To bring judgment. When it will be unmistakable that he is God. We can welcome him. If we know him. And he will welcome us. For he knows his sheep by name. If you know that gospel, you must repent and believe it. Cry out to Jesus. He's alive and well. He can hear. And he is patiently waiting to bring in this harvest. To secure you in his flock and give you a heavenly home. Don't put it off. Our final heading this morning ties together this section because it's the return of the missionaries that were sent out. So it's, it's kind of the end of the story. And I think we'll see that the final paragraph highlights that urgency and also gives us a few more priorities regarding spiritual harvest. He's talking about rejoicing. Let's see what the text says about those who return. Verse uh, 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So the mission must have gone well. They saw people believing, that, that, that's good. But even beyond the, the human adherents who received the message, he said, supernatural success as well, Lord. Even those demons, they were on the run. We saw people delivered. So when they talk about the demons, it's the pinnacle of their testimony. I think there were households that received him, households that came to faith. Oh, Lord, you should have seen it. The whole family was listening and so happy about Messiah. They probably had many testimonies, and this is the pinnacle of it. They, that, that word even talks about that. Even the demons, Lord. Ministry success, mission accomplished. 
before we move on to the response of Jesus, I want to show you that it's okay for Christians to have real joy when the gospel works. You know, what brings you joy? I've often told my brother, Ed Snyder, who's a Gideon, and says, Ed, when you get your Gideon magazines, leave, after you're done reading them, leave them for me. Because I like to read that little section. It has little testimonies. Somebody was sad and about to harm themselves in a hotel room, but they picked up a Gideon Bible and they read it and they're converted. I gobble those things up. Uh, th- those testimonies are precious because you know what? The gospel works. Jesus is around changing lives every day. People get born again. People get help. People get protection. People persevere. The gospel works. And when we gather for worship, when we come before our Lord, we ought to come with joy saying, you've kept me hither by thy grace. I've come. Let's rejoice in the success of the gospel. If you are still secured and if you still have hope for your unsaved loved ones. Or you hear what's going on in the mission field. Yes, there are places in this world where Christians are under immense attack and danger. But the gospel goes forward nevertheless. And even more so in places where persecution has thrived. The church has thrived all the more. Have real joy. The gospel works. Don't overlook that. It's been a while since we've seen a conversion in this place among us directly that we know of. But it's happened. And I come with anticipation that this gospel still works. Today may be a day of salvation for someone here, someone there. For the Lord's at work. But Jesus wants us to think about more than the success of our ministries. So he adds to that. He speaks to them. I don't take this as a rebuke. Some commentators say he's rebuking them for being puffed up. I don't think they're puffed up. They're rejoicing. Verse uh, 19, 18. The numbers are too small. Verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is the Lord referring to? Well, quickly. He could be saying he saw the original rebellion of Satan and the, and the, the angels that followed him in their fall to earth. Jesus was there. He saw that for sure. But it seems to be he's telling them something about the present. I saw. He's giving his testimony. Yes, it could go back to the temptation in the wilderness where Jesus was tempted three times. The devil was defeated and he sees the devil on decline. You're going down. Messiah's here. The power of God's word is here. Your days are numbered. But I think most specifically, and some commentators definitely agree, that as the gospel was going forward and as those demons were being defeated, Jesus saw the undoing of Satan during that season of ministry. He's like saying, yes, I know. And I saw more than the demons falling. I saw their master, the prince of the power of the air, he's falling 
And he's falling because Messiah is present here and in his people. And that's how he will fall ultimately. When I get to the cross, my victory will be secured over sin and death and the devil. And it will be finalized at my second coming, depending on your eschatology, and Satan ends up in the lake of fire. In Revelation, there's a paragraph in Revelation 12. It seems to start chapter 12 with those eternity past fall of Satan from heaven. But then it immediately seems to move to the earth period in which Jesus was actively conquering. Here's a quote from the middle of the book of Revelation, chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. That's verse 9, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Even that passage from Revelation, depending on where you put it in your eschatology, says that Satan is thrown down and he's knocked down time and time again by the authority of Christ and the coming of kingdom of Christ. Jesus has those proclaiming the kingdom. Spiritual warfare, whether we're talking about an individual soul or the pushback of a corrupted culture, comes by proclaiming Jesus as Lord. By proclaiming a way of salvation and proclaiming a future judgment and accounting to come. We know by reading all the New Testament and all the book of Revelation how it all ends. God wins. And sin is accounted for. This is the mission to which we are called. To advance the kingdom and preach the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, as conqueror. And lean upon him. And this should give us cause for rejoicing. For Christ is conquering. So Jesus clarifies what's really going on. I'm battling. Satan's losing. Don't forget that. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I'm protecting you. I've given you that authority. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you prove the genuineness of a preacher or an evangelist to see if they can handle snakes. No, that is not what Jesus is saying is a litmus test. He's just saying, you're the sheep. I'm the shepherd. I'm the conqueror. Don't get that reversed. But then how does he end? He says, these things are happening. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now that rhetorical expression, don't rejoice in this, but in that, that doesn't mean we can't take joy in conversions and ministry success. Of course we can. 
But Jesus is drawing a contrast. So it is permissible to rejoice in ministry success. But he says even more so. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Christians should rejoice most over saving grace. Written in heaven. It's a reference to being written in the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. That's mentioned in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Paul even tells two women that their name is in there. According to Philippians 4 verse 3. Two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Stop arguing. Because both your names are written in the book of life. It means when God saves someone, he secures someone, he knows them by name. And you should rejoice that you're going to heaven. That your sins are forgiven. That God loves you and has shown you his grace. Don't seek permanent joy from your success. But always rejoice most in your Savior. And you know, that's something we can all do every day. We can do it today. Let's say we had a ministry and it didn't go as well as we hoped. God says, just praise God that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. God is good. Many of you know one of the greatest preachers of the English language, know of him, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, we call him the doctor. He was a medical doctor, became a preacher. He was Welsh, but ministered primarily in England. He was born in 1899 and died in 1981. He was 81 years old. And he was the original benefactor of the banner of truth that Ian Murray helped start. It's without doubt that he was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. Some say he's, he's one of the greatest preachers since the time of the apostles. If you've not read his sermons, I commend them to you. He retired a bit earlier in 1968 so that he could publish and, and, and prepare his sermons for publication. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. Ian Murray visited his good friend and mentor in his dying days when he could no longer preach, when he could no longer write. And Ian Murray said, as the story goes, how are you coping now? I don't know the details, but I imagine Lloyd-Jones didn't take but a second to reply, quoting verse 20 by memory. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. From the great preacher. Let me take us to a couple of applications here as we close. I've given you on the printed outline the the key verb so that you can track. And we really need to get these done. Number one, make prayer a priority. Make prayer a priority. That's a takeaway for every Christian in this room. Whether you're five years old or 55 or older. Make prayer a priority. Our Lord commands it. We don't pray oftentimes because we don't believe there's a spiritual harvest or there's an urgency. Guess what? There's both. You ever see a headline and someone younger than you has passed away? Someone with a lot of money, a lot of celebrity, a lot of resource, and then they're dead? 
I, I take note of these headlines. Anybody younger than 63? I go, oh, no. In this life is the only opportunity to be right with Christ. His appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. Bishop John Charles Ryle of Liverpool, England said this about prayer. He said, prayer is one of the best and most powerful means of helping forward the cause of Christ in the world. It is a means within reach of all who have the spirit of adoption. All believers can pray for the success of the gospel and they ought to pray for it daily. And if you want to know one way you can do that, you can say, Thy kingdom come. Make prayer a priority. Secondly, focus on gospel opportunities. I spent some time showing us how Jesus' stratagems tried to focus these disciples. You know, don't chat on the road. Wait till you get to this. And and don't fuss over what you're fed. and, And focus That's for us. We need to declutter our lives and make room for this mission. Declutter. It's really hard. I know. Declutter your time, your focus, your energies. Do you even have relationships with other believers? If we're on a mission and we're thinking in terms of what we've studied, have we gotten to anyone's house? Do we have a long-term relationship with anyone who's lost? Or are we just on the road with our fellow pilgrims and entangled? And I, I think this scripture would encourage us to realize Jesus wants us laboring in the kingdom to focus And notice he does send them out two by two. We're not lone rangers. Find a partner for your ministry. If your ministry is to someone in your neighborhood, find someone to help you with that. Or in the workplace, find another believer in the company. Focus on gospel opportunities. Finally, as we've just recently noted, rejoice most of all in the saving grace of God to you. And you can do that today in our Worship, we're going to sing Amazing Grace in a minute, and that's a hymn of personal testimony. Is it yours? Sing it loud. Rejoice most of all in God's grace to you. Do that daily. It will humble you, and I think it will cultivate in your heart a desire for others to be saved as well. May God make it so. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we often tend to rejoice in the powerful things, in the showy things of Christianity, but may we be most thankful for your grace to us as sinners. May we be thankful for the gospel opportunities that you put all around us, individually and as a church. And may we be thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ is our shepherd, our Lord, our conqueror, and our king. And he has all authority over us in our lives. And he watches and cares and will come again. Father, bless our witness, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.